WBZ original. Bullock, Shelby, Winkler, and Schwartz. Okay. All right. Does that? Everyone think oh, that's? Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. You think right, that's good, John? It? Yeah. Yeah, it's good okay, representation. So you guys aren't, you're not going to fight about who gets in the show and who doesn't. Oh. Well, I might poison some coffee. Don't you see what it- <laughs> Welcome to our best of show. This is a retrospective of Alston's number one podcast, Studio BZ, the entire first year. And some of our really great guests, I would have to say out of these four, Tom Shelby is my favorite, talking about his incredible skill with dogs and people. Yes. And let it be known, there was almost a a battle between us. We're figuring out which four to pick up because we had such a great year of interviews. We boiled it down to this four. Tom Shelby, of course, the dog trainer. Tori Bullock, young man from Boston who has had these viral videos about various issues facing communities in Boston. We talked with him about some of those videos and his goals and some of the messages he wants to deliver. And then the opposite of viral, I guess, would be the poet laureate of Somerville, Lloyd Schwartz, my old (laughs) colleague from the Boston Phoenix. We had a lengthy conversation about poetry, where it fits in our culture today, and about Lloyd's own poetry. And he and I both read aloud some of it. If you're... uh, even if you never thought you'd get into poetry, I think uh, giving this a listen might change your mind. And then, of course, the Fonz, Henry Winkler, yeah. who came to the station to talk about his lifelong battle with dyslexia, the children's books he has written about it, and how he has had such an incredible, successful life and career as an Emmy Award-winning actor, uh, and his message to children about how successful and happy they can be, even if they're not good in school. And by the way, so wonderful. When he was here in person, the loveliest man, everyone in the building came out to see the Fonz and shake his hand. He could not have been more gracious. And then you got to sit down with him for this wonderful interview, go back into the Fonz and then into his new role uh, in Barry. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Barry that he won the Emmy for last year and the second season is on right now out. uh, And I... I think it's, you know, always hard when you meet someone who's like an idol of your childhood and he was everything you wished he would be. So check it out. And we hope this will give you a taste of what we're all about here at Studio BZ and maybe persuade you to listen regularly, download us wherever you get your podcasts, and most importantly, tell multiple friends. And then we will be back with more episodes in May. Quick little hiatus here. So enjoy the best of, and we'll see you again in May. Our guest is Tori Bullock. He's a Boston resident and performance artist who has blown up on social media with videos about gentrification, snow days in Boston, and a recent controversy surrounding the Dorchester Historical Society's insensitive, shall we say, insensitive Christmas card. Tori, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So great to meet you. And we want to jump in right away because people did see this in our newscast just a couple of weeks ago that... Uh, you had said in your video that you didn't think the people from the Dorchester Historical Society meant to do anything inappropriate or racist, but and they apologized. And then you posted a video, and uh, we'll hear some of that. It's crazy, because when stuff like this happens, my immediate thing is to think racism. Like, man, there are people out there that are just super racist, right? But that's really not the case, because what's actually happening and what they actually are is a lot, lot scarier. They're clueless. I think that this is another product of not having anybody that doesn't look like you in the room. You know, diversity. These situations just continue to show me that there clearly are people out there who still 
do not have black friends. So here's what I'm offering here, white people. I will be your black friend. I'm starting a brand new program, y'all. It's called Diversatory. The aim of Diversatory will be to check you when nobody else will. And should we say that the, the card said, dreaming of a white Dorchester, of course, trying to play off the famous Christmas song, and it did not go well for the Historical Society. They have since apologized. Um, it, what, why did you make this video? What did you uh, make? Well, okay, so working backwards a little bit, the first thing I thought of when I saw the situation pop up, I was actually driving down the road, and I had no intention of making a video, and then I heard it, and I was like, wait, there's no way that actually happened. <laughs> and then I, re- I uh, did my research on it, and the first thought I had was, here we go again, um, just because it felt like there was so – there's always so many situations popping up on my feed that are just kind of just racially insensitive to the point of like not oh they're trying to be racist but more so there really wasn't anybody to check this before it got off the factory floor type of thing and in fact in the video you say you offer your services basically as a black friend oh yes Liam. to people <laughs> yes <laughs> and say, or to organizations that yeah. would like to email you yes. organizations are sending out their christmas card and they go is this insensitive? I need to check. It. What was the what was yeah, the goal no, there? So you offered those services. Literally, while I'm making the video, I, I, with all the video work I do, I don't just like to make videos. I like to have a video and then something for the people to do after it. Mm. Um, whether it's a petition, I, there was a video I did for the Strand Theater, and we got to like start a petition to get a new theater space inside there. So I always like to have a, a sense of action to all my videos. And with this one, I was just ranting, and it just came to me while I was just uh, improving. Like, you know what? It would be great if there was an actual like a black friend that could talk to these people and just be like you know what i will listen to your idea and tell you if you are on the edge or not did anyone actually reach out to you 25 inquiries since i posted the video serious kinds of questions okay so well i have i've set up five uh i've done two meetings so far and i have five more to go of just meeting and just consulting um but no it's literally and it runs the gamut there are some people who recognize the humor in it. And your whole point of the video was that when people just sort of at large hear the word diversity, uh, what it means is you were saying if if there had been a black person present or involved in that historical society, it would have not even have occurred to them. To exactly. Write something like yeah, that, right? exactly. Yeah, it's just it just having the representation in the room. I feel like a lot of times when people hear the word diversity, just like I say in the video, they just hear black people want jobs, give me some jobs. And it's, that's not that's not what it is. It's about there's a collective energy out there and there's there's like a collective thought that groups are having that if there's a person of color in the room, they can say, actually, uh, maybe we don't want to do this and here's why. That's they not going to diff- be taken well. Yeah, right. exactly. They have a different experience. They've heard it a right. different way potentially. Has anyone run an idea by you and you've said, yeah, you know what, that actually is insensitive. Not yet. Why. I'm waiting for it, but no, yeah. it hasn't come yet. But <laughs> that's I'm, good. I'm that, that's for that's it. promising. Yeah. Let's just back up a little bit because you're a graduate of the Boston Arts Academy. Yes, yes. So talk about what drew you to that school and how your experience there formed your talent. Uh, literally, it was... I mean, my what drew me to that school is what drives a lot of people to Boston Arts Academy, and I mean this in the best way I can. But I was just a weird kid. Like I was, a, I was a kid that loved art and creating stuff. And at the time, you were an interesting. I was kid. an interesting kid. Eccentric. Yes, I was e- eccentric. Well, I, I mean, I, for me, I mean, in my heart, I, I, I like the term weird because, like, <laughs> it, it was just. It's just out of the box, and I didn't know how to define it. I just there was so much stuff going on. I liked this stuff, but I couldn't say why. People have called um, me weird. You were like, and I, it's okay. You know, sometimes, sometimes me. Some. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you you were looking for like-minded people. Yes, yes. Study so, with, all right, right? Yeah. So, um, and did you felt really known there? 
at, at Boston Arts Academy? Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to go back a little bit, I got into BAA. I always like saying this story because it's such a lovely story about teachers and the power that teachers have. But I was in the eighth grade, and I was super shy. hated talking. Could not, ugh. It's too much. I still have a little bit of it, but... Seventh and eighth grade boys hate that. Yeah, just not for me, right? And uh, she noticed that. And one day I was doing... She gave the assignment to do a book report. And she pulled me aside and she said, Tori, why don't you why don't you write this in the form of a skit? Like, you know, just uh, present it in front of the class. So I go home and instantly I'm like, okay, book report. Okay, Siskel and Ebert. Okay, I'll do like a review. So I go in front of the class. I do this review thing and the class starts laughing. And I, in that moment, I was like, oh. oh that's powerful. Yep. And then when I <laughs> left that room, she pulled me aside. Everybody's, good job, Tori, good job. And she pulls me aside and she says, uh, some of the most important words I've ever heard in my life, have you ever thought of doing theater? And then from that point, that got me to audition for BAA. And then the rest is history. So what happened after Boston Arts Academy? At what point did you decide, I have something to say. I want to just point a camera at myself and just kind of talk because that's the way a lot of your videos are. They're kind of just stream of consciousness. You're just talking about an issue. Yeah. So like when I got out of school, I just started acting professionally, actually. Um, I joined up with a theater company and I started producing my own work. There was a show that I had uh, called Articulation, which was a a poetry meets theater production through uh, Company One over at Boston Center for the Arts. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a few years and it, it, it made me... We were doing poetry about issues that were happening in our communities. So it made me start to realize all the different issues that were going on in my community that I didn't really know about. Hmm. But just talking about them. It was years and years and years of just talking, saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And then by the time it got to my video stuff, it was like, oh, I can actually start to not just talk about it, but create events around it, create movements around it. So You created a, or you posted a video about the first snow day in Boston. Oh, yeah. And that really <laughs> took off. Were you oh, taken yeah. by surprise? I was taken by absolute surprise by that thing because <laughs> as an artist, I've created so much work in my life that I'm like, please support this. Please just look at it. Please just give me some shine for it. And people would be like, oh, yeah, it's cute. Good job. Good, good three-hour play there, buddy. But who cares? <laughs> but this 30-second on my way home and just, you know, let's make a video of snow days coming tomorrow. And I was so excited. I just did this little rap and then I put it up and I woke up the next morning and it was everywhere. Yeah, it ended up on the Today Show, yeah, I think. It and was crazy. It hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. You paired up Rocky yep. with your own song about it being the first snow day. And I think with people just probably related to it's your universal. excitement about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, kids are so excited about that sort of thing. Um, your best known video I, I would think just in terms of views is the one that you recorded two years ago about luxury condos. Now, you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, Tori, you have luxury apartments to your left and luxury apartments to your right, but what does that have to do with you? If you're not interested in luxury apartments, just don't buy a luxury apartment. Well, here's what it has to do with me. You see all these apartments in the middle of these two amazing, beautiful luxury apartments, luxury condos that'll be about to be popped up. The rent is going through the roof. You think I'm playing? You think there's a joke? Let's take a look. Like, look at all this stuff. We're talking about studio apartments where one person is going to be living there. In order to afford some of these rents, I need two to three people to be in that studio apartment with me. And it's a studio apartment. And we've actually talked a lot about this phenomenon on this podcast uh, and on our show at eight about this luxury housing boom in Boston. Many of the units, which go for millions and millions of dollars, are actually empty. 
LLCs are buying them up. The people don't actually even live in them. They're using them as investment properties. And in the meantime, everyone else's rents uh, go up. And tell us what it was that you saw there that you decided you wanted to comment on. Yeah, I saw what I see all around the city. And what a lot of us see is just these buildings coming out of nowhere and are just these huge skyscrapers of like, oh, luxury apartments and condos. But it just made me ask the question of who are these for? Because at the point that I was seeing them pop up, I had friends who were moving out of Boston because rent's too high. The area that I was actually shooting that video on, people were moved, being priced out of their apartments because these two high-rises are being put in on like opposite sides of the street. So it just it, it just felt like, okay, there's something going on. It feels really unfair. I have to talk about and it. And watching you on the sidewalk sort of pointing between these two buildings and showing how they just cropped up out of nowhere, it... it occurs to you as you're watching it, you're, you're really combining social commentary with your humor and your ability to uh, tell a story with video. Is it really important to you to stay in the city of Boston and do this as opposed to going to New York, which is what so many theater and acting people do? That's a really good question. Uh, first, I'm kind of jealous that you stumbled upon my secret recipe for my video. <laughs> but um, in terms of the getting up and moving, I mean, I love I love Boston. And artists' biggest gripe with Boston is that there's nothing here for them. Mm. Um, it's too close and yet too far from yeah, New York. Yeah, exactly. Right? But my thing is that how will there ever be ever, how will there ever be anything here for us if we're not here to build it? Because like, the thing I love most about Boston I can't find in New York is this. Like, I'm a guy who sits on the internet and makes videos, really good videos, <laughs> but I'm on a podcast with WBZ talking about my videos. I'm not sure that would happen in L.A. or New York because it's so small here that if you have something that catches people's eye, you can really do a lot of stuff with you it. You can really make a big impact. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious when you hear a comedian like Michael Shea, for instance. He's right. Make jokes Sometimes. about Boston. Sometimes. Right? Sometimes. Does that bother you? Or? It, it doesn't bother me because my perspective on it is is similar. And, and when I hear somebody who's not from here have that perspective, it's like, I mean, guys, like no matter what we feel about our city, the fact that a guest can come here and stay here for an hour, a day, a week, and leave and feel that that's their perspective – whether or not we feel that's a real thing or not, there's something here giving that impression off. You're saying that the impression that Boston is a racist yeah. city. Yeah, the, so, yeah, and then the fact that Michael Che was like, you know, Boston is, is one of the most racist cities I've been to. Now, it's that's a really big statement, especially when I, you know, knowing the history of America and different places in America and, and mm-hmm. their, their levels of racism. Um, but I also take into consideration that that's a celebrity who travels around America and he sees a lot of places. So if he's making that statement, maybe there's something here that's giving that vibe off. You, getting back to the talk about the luxury condos, and you've also done videos about gentrification. Has the city ever reached out to you, the mayor's office, and said, hey, let's talk about this? Uh, I have an interesting relationship with the city, uh, with, with City <laughs> Hall and the city of Boston. Um, because I I started off my relationship with them as a young artist with a lot of ideas and literally just an artist guy off the street. Hey, I have some ideas for my community. What can we really do here? And um, I was often given just the kind of, all right, buddy, go, you know, thanks for your idea, but we have this area taken care of. And then when I started to make these videos and go viral, the phone started ringing. And I started taking meetings with, with City Hall and with, with people in City Hall and, and, the, um, and the Office of Arts and Tourism talking about some of these ideas that I had and if there was a possibility on the feasibility on bringing some of them to life. Has any of that been productive? No. 
No? <laughs> no. It's been productive in the sense of um, me learning the system and learning what it actually takes to really get something done and push something through. And it's not always just about having a really good idea, but it's about having kind of uh, some of the politics behind bringing that idea to life when you get the city involved can be a lot. When a lot of people drive down the Mass Pike and they look at Boston, they see all those cranes on the mm. horizon and they hear there's a building boom in Boston and there's so mm. much going on. They think that's great. Every city in America wants this. So from someone living in Dorchester, what's your message to the, the person outside who's looking and thinking, well, what a great economic time this is well it is it, it is a great economic time for certain people and but for others it's a, a time of transition and a time of hey you got to move on because other people have come are coming mm-hmm. so but it's hard because i'm not telling hey if you happen to be very financially well off in your life i'm not saying if you come to boston you're going to ruin everybody's lives and don't come here type of thing life is life i'm just saying that when you do come here you should probably know that there is a culture and a uh, a community of people that are being pushed out as a result. In fact, you actually set up what you called a, a, it was a gentrification game yes. in Upham's yeah. Corner yeah. near where you grew up in Dorchester. Tell us about that. What oh, was yeah. the idea there? Yeah, that was that was that was a crazy one. That was um, so it felt like everyone's reaction to gentrification happening and the luxury condos popping up. It felt like people were treating it like a game. Like it was just like, oh, this area, there's something there. This area, there's something there. And because people were treating it like a game, I felt like, man, we should probably have a definitive board game for this uh, for this issue. So what I did was I created an actual life-size board game um, and took over uh, space over at, over in Upham's Corner. It, it's the old Citizens Bank that's been um, since closed down, and just took it over and put up a life-size board game um, in, inside that old bank, and people just came pop-up style and played the game. How did people react to it, and how did the game work? Oh, it was crazy. It was it, <laughs> it, it was one of those games. It was, it was a game that was kind of more so of an art installation than a game because there was only one outcome that could happen. Can I ask, your videos have hundreds of thousands of views. Um, how do white people react your videos and how did they react in that gentrification game? And obviously, we're not a monolith, but have you noticed a, a, a difference in the way right, white people react to your content versus black people? Don't take this the wrong way, but white people love me. It is because, <laughs> it, but it's because it, is, it, it boggles my mind though, because a lot of my a lot of people who hit me up and a lot of people who stop me on the street are like white people and especially older white people, and I think it's because. There's nothing that I post online that is mean. I'm never mean. I'm never like, I hate these people and we need to da-da-da. It's about solutions. Yes, it's it's a solution. It's like I and I'm not I'm not saying all these businesses need to go out and hire, you know, all the all the black people and fix the system. It's more, I'm your black friend and I just want to talk to you about what you're doing there. And because I go through it that way, no matter how you feel about any of the topics I bring up, everybody feels the love of it. Do you consider yourself an activist first or an artist first? And what's the relationship between those two? Very good question. Um, I would consider myself an artist first. Um, An artist that picks certain issues that can be told through an activist lens, but I never want to... There's so, there's so much responsibility and work that goes into being an activist. And I've met activists in Boston. I'm not an activist. I'm a guy that points the light and says, this is going on over there. And uh, sometimes our, our interests line up. But for the most part, I'm, I'm interested in plays. I, I like writing plays and shorts and, you know, creating all that stuff. And the video stuff is, is my wing of activism. But 
So you're holding a mirror up to Boston. Do you have a project in your mind up next? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm planned for the next year and a half. Like I'm, <laughs> we're we're ready to go. But you're not ready to reveal it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The the next project I will be doing is is on stage. I'm getting back on stage in a live event style thing. Woo. Where Great. and when or do you not totally do not know have, the I, I have I have a, a tentative where in my mind it is a, a, a complex I will be taking over. We're not just doing a stage, we're doing an upstairs multi level thing. Like a pop up yeah, like a pop up performance place. art piece. Yeah. Are you going to promise to come back and talk to us I will, about it? Yes, absolutely. I mean come on. You. you guys are my new home <laughs> spot for, for all my pieces. I'll definitely contact you guys. Well, we just love your videos, Tori. We think yeah. it's, a, it's a community service. They're funny. Uh, they're informative. We love watching them. We love having you on the show. Thank yeah. you so thank, much. Thank you so much. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. One of our great assignment editors here at WBZ, Jody Parrish, mm. Um, picked up on the fact that Henry Minkler was out on a book tour for the his Fonz. new book, The Fonz, hey, and that he was hey. going to be doing a book signing in Plainville, I believe. And so she set him up to come in to talk about his books. Henry Winkler uh, has dyslexia, always has, but it wasn't diagnosed till he was 31. His hear him talk about oldest that. son yeah. was diagnosed, he and he goes, well, wait, story. that describes my symptoms, my learning disability, and realized he has dyslexia after all these wow. years. So he talks about his challenges as a child and his acting career, which now spans from Happy Days through the current Barry on HBO, for which he won an Emmy Award last year. His first Emmy, I think. He was an enormous cultural figure. Mm. And so it was really interesting to talk to him now as he looks back, educated here at Emerson College in Boston, by the way. We got to interview him in the lobby here at WBZ for TV. And then you, Paula, brought him up here to the podcast studio to talk to him more at length. But the minute he walked into the lobby, first of all, the lobby was packed. People appeared out of everywhere. I have never even seen. I don't even know if these were WBZ employees. There's <laughs> they people were. there to see the Fonz. He's this cultural phenomenon they for people of, of a certain offices. age. And he was the nicest guy you could ever imagine. He sits down. First of all, he thanks us profusely for agreeing to interview him and help him promote this new children's book. Which to Paula and me was like, uh, well, Complete sure, no we brainer. absolutely are happy to have you. And then he sits and he has this very funny way about him. And he sits in his chair and he goes, ah, now I feel settled. I feel settled, Paula and Liam. <laughs> I just I came from the airport and now I'm settled. Yeah. And then he looks at Paula and he goes, can I tell you one thing, Paula? You are ageless. Ageless. <laughs> he was very The Fawn still has it. Wow, the sure Fawn does. Still the Fawn's is still it. a charmer. 73. I wonder if he can still hip check a jukebox <laughs> and get it to turn on. But really, he was everything you would hope he would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Truly a gentleman. Here's Paula's interview. Well, it's a pleasure to have Henry Winkler and his co-author, Lynn Oliver, here in the Studio BZ podcast to talk about your latest book. Uh, And this book is very important, called Everybody is Somebody. This is the, which number in the series? The 29th. The 29th Hank Zipser novel. And you've decided this will be the last. This is the last, yeah. What was the initial concept? Because you didn't realize that you ha- that you have dyslexia till you were 31 years yes, old. Yes, that is true. I I 
uh, somebody by the name of Alan said to me, hey, why don't you write books for children about your learning challenge? I said, because I could never write a book. He said, I'll introduce you to Lynn Oliver. She knows everything about children's literature. I said, okay, we had lunch. Uh, we hatched Hank Zipser. And the concept was my life, my emotional life as a, an 8, 9, 10-year-old, not achieving, trying to figure it out, not knowing what was going on, with a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So, no, yeah. You grew up in New York City. I did, in Manhattan. In right? Manhattan. What did your parents do? My father was uh, bought and sold lumber, hmm. wood, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to buy and sell wood. He wanted you in the business. Yeah, and the only wood I was interested in was Hollywood. <laughs> and did you have older siblings? I had a, an older sister. And were you uh, being she, compared to her? No, uh, because you know what? We were both learning challenged, not knowing it. Uh, so, no, I was not compared to her because uh, in the, uh, the uh, Western European family, boys were always treated differently than girls. Oh, yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> in Irish families, yeah. especially. Yeah. I can attest to that. Absolutely. Um, and Lynn, t- within children's literature, when you tackle a subject like this and you're trying to really get into the minds of children, they don't necessarily know who Henry Winkler is, but their parents do. That's right, but the story is really a universal story because one in five kids in America has some kind of learning challenge. And so if it's not your family, it's the family next door, and if it's not them, it's the family next door to them. So really, it, even though the inspiration was Henry's story, the story we're telling is about a kid who's smart and resourceful and funny and handsome and popular. He just stinks at school. Mm. And, and the message really is... It's not you, that it's not necessarily, and children just don't feel. Right, how you learn is because of the wiring in your brain and it's hereditary, it's passed on. So how you learn has nothing to do with how fantastic you are in this world and what the contribution that you can make to the world. It's so hard. I have four children. And as they're going through school, uh, the academic world is all they are immersed in. Right. right? They don't realize yet that some people excel in the academic environment, but they might go on later to excel at other things. That's a hard message to abstract thought to explain to a child. When we talk to children everywhere— um, in, in this country, and you say to 500 kids sitting on their bottoms uh, uh, in the uh, multipurpose room, and you say, anybody know what they're great at? Every child knows what they're great at. One child says, I'm great at making friends. I'm great at soccer. One child said, I'm great at logarithms. I said, hey, that makes one of us. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so they have that innate sense, and it, they can feel defeated as school goes on. And they right? do. And your, your self-image drops to the bottom of the ocean like a stone. Mm. We're talking as much to their parents and their teachers because parents want their children to achieve. And typically they want them to achieve in traditional ways. And our society is very focused on test scores mm-hmm. and colleges and where you're going to school and what your achievements are. Sure. And so we have to learn to celebrate differences 
not to judge people who are not going the traditional way. What do we say if they don't do well? Yeah, what we what we say to people is if your child has problems reading or in math, don't get them a reading or a math tutor. Get them an art teacher. Mm. In other words, try to find what their special skill is, where they're going to excel, what's going to mean something to them in the world, and and teach to their strengths. Children are such an extension of the ego. Yes, that is so it's true. so hard for parents to accept that. And that really is true. a that is a very big problem, because uh, I have we've gone into schools where I, yesterday we met a little boy uh, in San Francisco who just found out that he was dyslexic. I think he is uh, nine years old. And his mother was distraught that he could not stay in the school she thought was the one. Sure. Now, it's not this little boy's fault. And the little boy feels bad enough. Then you put that pressure on them. Right. What Stacy and I, my wife and I, had always said to our children, I don't care, we don't care what you come home with in grades as long as you tried as hard as you could. One is a teacher. One of our children is a director, just finished his third, um, uh, right here in Fall River. He just directed his third movie in Fall River. And one is in business. Yeah, my parents said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is hard, I think, in um, uh, areas of the country, like San Francisco, like Boston, Los Angeles, where there are great academic institutions all around. And school is a big deal. Right. And that Uh, pressure is there. People don't necessarily understand this is your brain. This is the way you learn. So people mm. say to us all the time, what's the cure? How do we help them get mm-hmm. over this? And so you have to understand that it's not something you get over. It's something you negotiate, that you'll find out how you learn best. And our job as adults is to help kids find that out and to provide activities and material that's going to help them learn the way they learn, not the way we think they learn. Um, let's talk about how, because Boston was a big part of your young Very life. Very important part. You talk about how excited you were to be accepted to Emerson College. I, I applied to 28 schools. I got into two. Wow. One, I've never met anybody who actually went there, and the other was Emerson. And so I spent four extraordinary years in this incredible city. What years I, were those? 63 to uh, 67. Boston was a very different place. A very different place, but still had great pizza at Regina's. <laughs> Pizzeria Regina never changes. No. What would you say you took from Emerson that has influenced your life and your career the most? One that I was able to graduate, that I actually worked my way through it. Uh, two, that the city is large enough to learn your independence and small enough to make your own so that I felt comfortable. I was not overwhelmed. Uh, and the, the amount of students here, mm. it, I always thought of it as a caboose. <laughs> And that at, in the summertime, uh, the caboose just emptied out. Yes, you know, all these thousands and thousands of kids went home. Uh, I, I, I am indebted 
to Boston. Yeah, it, it is true. I think New York for a lot of young people at that age can be overwhelming. Yeah. Boston is a great size. Great. For a city to go to school in. And, and not long thereafter, by the time you were 27, you get the break of your life. Unbelievable. I went to Hollywood. I made enough money making commercials to go for one month. And at the end of that month, on my birthday, in uh, 1973, I got the Fonz. Six lines. Um, I had one day of work. Uh, I was so duty-bound that uh, the, the other four days of the week I would sit in my apartment because you can't go and have fun right. on a work day. Right. So I would just sit waiting to be called to go to work. And then eventually the character grew and I worked every day. Yeah. It's so interesting because I've listened to past interviews with Gary Marshall. Yeah. And that first year, my when God. you think about what a different world that was – the Fonz had like a khaki cloth jacket. It's true. It's right really because they hard. wouldn't let you wear black leather. It was a McGregor golf jacket, <laughs> and I'm telling you, the collar wouldn't stay up. We used wire. We did everything. It just kind of drooped, yeah. and so you know, it's hard to be cool in a droopy jacket. <laughs> and it was a little too preppy. Yeah, right. It was a little. And too... And then finally, ABC let me wear leather wow. when I was in a scene with my motorcycle. With the motorcycle. Yes. That was what made it okay. And so Gary called the writer's room and he said from ABC, said, hey, they said he could be in leather with his bike, never write another scene without his bike. And... There you go. And now it's in the Smithsonian. We've been talking, and I've been saying, I am a child of the mid to late 70s. And in my mind's eye, everything in that time period was Star Wars and the Fonz. Yeah. You were an enormous cultural influence when there are only three networks. Right. Children are only watching a certain number of shows. Yes. And you had this enormous influence. But when you look back at Happy Days, it was a very family-oriented, innocent portrayal of America. Right. The men who are in charge, everything, everywhere starts with the people at the head. You know, Gary Marshall, Tom Miller, and Eddie Milkus, they formed the, um, the culture yeah. of Happy Days. And the emotion of happy days. Mm -hmm. And so they were not afraid. Uh, we got letters, actually, from uh, a school uh, for children uh, who were incarcerated. And they said, these kids love the Fonz, but they will not show any emotion. Could you have the Fonz show emotion? And that's when I was in the hospital room and cried over Richie talking to God, saying... You know, if you make him better, I'll make a deal with you. Yeah. In those years after Happy Days, yes. was it hard? Was it hard to not be the Fonz all of a sudden? It was so difficult to get acting work because everybody said, oh, he is so funny, so talented, but he was the Fonz. Mm. So that's when, when I started. When you're that iconic, it's, it's I, hard I, to move and, on. And I could not get hired. So that's when I became a producer and a director. Ever since, people know you from uh, quirky characters. Yes, that you is know, true. Waterboy and Scream. Arrested Development. Right. And now Barry, now which you're Barry. doing with Bill Hader. What's the joy of doing a character like this at this point in your career? I was 27 when I got the Fonz. And I talked at that time about that my career was a sapling. 
and I planted a small tree. And I wanted to grow and grow and grow until I couldn't do it anymore. Hmm. So that was 27. And at 72, I got Gene Cousinow on Barry on HBO. And I'm still doing it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he's just an unbelievable character. Thank you. Just so Every, I, I had funny. a lot of those teachers. They, it's a combination yeah. at Emerson of people and then at the Yale Drama School. So there, there are some Emerson teachers folded into that oh character. Oh, my goodness. Yes, indeed. Teaching the acting class. Yeah. <laughs> at that time. Um, one thing that you commented on downstairs that I thought of is you're always a professional. And you learned that from Ron Howard. From Ron Howard. Uh, uh, And the dyslexia played a role sort of in your reading the script and the way you reacted to one scene. Right. And, and, uh, you know, we were doing a scene, one of the very first scenes ever. Now, I'm 27 and Ron is 18. So, and he is the star of the show. And, you know, I'm very emotional and I started hitting my script. I didn't like the joke. And he put his arm around me. And walked me to the back of the soundstage, uh, stage uh, 24 on Paramount Lot. And he said, you know, we probably wouldn't, we shouldn't hit the script. The writers are working as hard as they can. I said, Ron, I will never hit my script as long as I live. Again. He was wise and I was an idiot. Well, it's fascinating because he had been a little boy on the Andy Griffith show. Right. He was sort of the seasoned veteran at 18. He was. And you were the rookie. Right. And his parents were both actors. They, they, were, they left the, the farm in Oklahoma. They drove to New York. His dad was in the original Mr. Roberts. They came to California. And they did not let him be anything less than a professional on set starting at three. He was not treated differently. He could not. uh, He had no attitude, no affect. He had good parents. He was amazing. Can I ask you one question about, because I've heard you joke about it yourself. Yes. What does it feel like to be associated with a cultural phrase that people use? Jump the shark. Like jump the shark. Okay, so first of all, I'm very proud because I am the only actor who has jumped the shark twice. (laughs) Sorry, we should back up and say that there was a late in the series episode of Happy Days, where the family went to Hawaii? No, uh, Hollywood. Hollywood. Yes, because Ron was going to be a reporter. That's right. And And there was some sort of uh, conflict on the beach. And I was going to solve it. Uh, I was going to save um, Potsy and Richie if I jumped the shark on water skis. Don't you have the leather jacket on, too? I had a leather jacket on. They ripped out the lining. (laughs) So that it would be easier. My father had told me for years, tell, um, tell Gary Marshall you water ski. I don't think so, Dad. <laughs> no, no, take him cake and also say that you water ski. I don't think I'm going to do that. So one day I it's said, a talent. my father has told me to tell you I water ski. I've done it. Dad, I did it. Boom, done. All of a sudden, the Fonz is water skiing and jumping a shark uh, years later on Arrested Development on the dock. I jumped the shark (laughs) in order to go and get a soda. (laughs) 
So it's become the phrase for something that was at its stayed pinnacle and has now stayed at the fair too Except long. that we were number one for the next four or five years <laughs> after right. that. So it never stopped. It didn't really... So it doesn't bother you. No, it does not. That's really- and not only that, but at that time there were newspapers. So people actually read newspapers, <laughs> you know. And every time they mentioned Jump the Shark, they had a picture of me water skiing. <laughs> and I had, I, I would have to say, really good legs. Well, so it if never you do bothered me. you say so me. yourself. Yes, if I say so myself. <laughs> um, would you read the end of the book sure. for us? So the last, yeah, let you go. the last um, uh, novel of Here's Hank, um, of Hank Zipser, is Everybody is Somebody. Because I would lie in bed like so many children did and do, thinking I'm not good at anything. I'm failing at everything. I'm good at lunch, but that's not, uh, no one is, is, is really excited about that. I want to be somebody. So this is um, an adventure where he finally gets his picture on the bulletin board of his school in the hallway. And he gets there up and down all around. It is a crazy adventure. And it is he's in bed at the end of the day. My mom pushed the door open. He came, she came in and sat down on the edge of my bed, tucking the covers under my chin like she used to do when I was little. I'm not little anymore. I'm in second grade. You should feel great right now, she said. I do, Mom. I do. Can you believe I've got my picture hanging on the bulletin board in the hallway of PS87? I never thought that would happen. But you see, honey, it did. Everything you do, Hank... You do in your own way. That's a gift. I know, Mom, but a lot of times that gift gets me into so much trouble. You're special, Hank. Never forget that. She gave me a kiss on my forehead, and she left the room, and I felt my eyes get very heavy. The rest of me felt great. And the last thought I had before I drifted off to sleep was Hank Zipser... Someday, you're going to be somebody. Henry Winkler, you're a national treasure. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I feel great. Beautiful. And Lynn? I am. I am. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. Okay, now for probably our favorite segment of the year because we have a dog right now in Studio BZ with us. Her name is Paula Jean, again, to be distinguished from Paula Margaret, our uh, (laughs) lovely co-host here on the podcast. And Paula Jean's owner, Tom Shelby, has been a dog trainer for 40 years in New York and now on Martha's Vineyard. And he has a new book out called Dog Training Diaries, Proven Expert Tips and Tricks to Live in Harmony with Your Dog. Tom, thanks so much for coming in. We know you had to take the ferry in. Everything was okay, right? Thank you. Yes, everything. Everything was fine. And I imagine Paula Jean was very well behaved on the ferry because that's what you do. Yes, she was very well behaved (laughs) and and is most of the time. Tell us about Paula Jean. Well, Paula Jean is seven years old. I adopted her five years ago. I was at the chiropractor and I have a column on Martha's Vineyard which is called Ask the Dog Charmer where people send in their questions. And the chiropractor asked me if um, she had a patient there who could talk to me if she had problems with her dog. I ended up coming home with Paula. 
Um, I am now not allowed to go to the chiropractor anymore. That's, <laughs> that's done. And it's been replaced with acupuncture. And she was um, unsocialized. Uh, she lived in the woods kind of with a family. The husband didn't really want her. And she um, was what's called a nervous wetter. If mm. somebody looked at her, she would just release a little bit of urine and was very insecure. And um, I have, in the five years, increased her confidence quite dramatically. And she's wonderful. She's um, so happy. She's beautiful. very happy. She's a poodle, right? Yeah, she's a purebred beautiful poodle, poodle. And she's very, very sweet. Um, and very athletic. Uh, yeah. We she hasn't had her usual four or five mile run today, so she may be a little bouncy. But <laughs> <laughs> she is currently resting her head right now on our yes. social media manager she, Allie's lap. She's, she's yes, she's, she's a lover. She's a she's a lover. She's very cuddly, very sweet. Mm. And I listen. I love I love what I do. It was Mark Twain who said, "If you love what you do, you never work a day in your life." Mm -hmm. And I. That's how I feel. Why are I, dogs so much better than people, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fact. Well, I, yeah, you is. know, it's interesting you, you say that, John. I think one of the best social contracts man has ever made has been with a dog. Um, so much better. Um, when trained, they're cooperative because they really want to please. So most of the time I'd like to please my wife. Um, but there are people you meet you don't want to please. You know, it's uh, it's a pretty broad question, John. <laughs> yes, I know. I, <laughs> intentionally, yeah. And I had, before I moved here, eight to 900 appointments a year training, half for yeah. problem dogs. So many of those people initially were not feeling wire dogs so much right. better than people, that's right. for sure. Right. What originally brought you to training dogs as a young man? Has this always been your career? No, not at all. Um, Actually, we, a bunch of us lived together in the 70s, which I commonly, I, um, I, I like to refer to as animal house because we had a lot of animals, not, <laughs> we weren't the animals. Ah. We had dogs and cats and birds and snakes and hamsters, etc. So we, we nicknamed it. And when we moved out of there, my wife and I, I said to myself, I gotta get a job. And I saw an ad in the paper, it said, dog trainer wanted experience necessary. That seemed interesting, especially coming out of Animal House, so I called up, lied about my experience, <laughs> and got hired immediately, so I read a couple of books immediately on it, and I really never looked back. I've worked with really some of the best experts in the field, and um, an awful lot of experience. And you say start with three commands that a dog should know in order to be considered well-trained. Stay, leave it and come. Yeah, well, Why those three and then will you, will you I, I don't know if I'd use the word start. These are three of the most important commands to me, especially if you're going to have a dog off leash. Um, and so many dogs that end up getting hit by cars because they saw a squirrel across the street and just dashed across. There are five to seven types of aggression depending on who you read and how you define. And one is predatory aggression. Have, has anybody here ever seen a blind person with a seeing eye dog being dragged down the street no. by the dog Never. to go after a no. squirrel? Never. Absolutely not. That's a trained dog. but. I had me, uh, hundreds of lessons where 
the dog, I needed to teach the dog not to drag the person after a cat or a squirrel or a chipmunk. That's a leave it command. It can also pertain to <clears throat> you leave the donut on the coffee table and walk out of the room for whatever, and you don't want the dog to take your donut. Um, I just met a lady at a hike in the vineyard whose dog ate a chocolate uh, marijuana-filled brownie. Oh, yes, that's a double that whammy. Yes, between that's the double whammy, and the dog survived, but has never been the same. It's oh. really, it's it's not as healthy as it used to be. So the leave it command, and that's another thing I call it, uh, the dog god. Um, you, you could teach a dog to leave it. If we put things on the table and here she went to sniff, I'd say leave it and she would turn away. But if we left stuff on the table and left the room, that's a whole other story. And that's what I referred to. I kind of created the, the concept of the dog god. The dog god sees all, all the time and doesn't like it when you take my stuff off the coffee table. Mm -hmm. And the way I set that up, so for example, if we had a stool or a chair in that corner, left the door open and put a mirror there, and we went into the hallway, and then I put not just a donut or a hot dog on the table, but a Tupperware container that's perforated with a hot dog in it because you don't want the dog to self-reward and get that hot dog, swallow it quickly, then you chastise it from the dog's perspective. It's still worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. So what, I, what you do is you have it in the Tupperware container and you go out of the room and the dog looks around, says nobody can see me, and just as the nose touches that, I can be outside the room and have two metal pots and I bang them together. I say nothing. The dog screws itself through the ceiling in startlement, but <laughs> relates that startlement to trying to take the thing off the table. I come in the room later, I had nothing to do with it. The dog god doesn't like it when you take my stuff. <laughs> Hi, sweetheart, how you doing, you dog? So that kind of concept, that's what I call the dog god concept. It's a very important concept. Well, it's kind of like know. the... the, the um the, the collar, the electronic, you know, the electric collar. fence. They hear the sound first before they ever get zapped, the, and the sound makes. The that's stop, right. right. And but what's important with that is the flags have to get a negative association initially. So what I'll do, I'll bring an apprentice, and I have an apprentice on the island who I'm very fond of, and he'll sit behind the flags, and when the owner approaches the flags, he'll maybe bang the flags and yell, and the owner runs away from the flags praising the dog. So it starts to get in, mm. and we do this in the whole perimeter of the, the, the flags, and then you go, and you do it where the dog heard the beep, just as the dog heard the beep, Somebody gets angry with the flags and the dogs retreat. So that you know, the, the electronic <laughs> fence is is a good item. It it really if you yeah. like. Tom, not to get sidetracked here, but you mentioned the story about the marijuana brownie and now with marijuana possession legal uh, and sales legal in Massachusetts. Uh, what should dog owners know about marijuana and dogs, both consumption and secondhand exposure? Uh, for consumption, I would say treat it like garlic or onions. 
um, things that dogs that really can be somewhat toxic yeah, to dogs. To be kept uh, away. Raisins, and you would treat the marijuana the same way. You really don't want the dog consuming it. As to secondhand exposure, you know, I haven't read very much about that, and I, there's no, there's no real, there are no real conclusions, so I really don't know how to answer that, mm. honestly. Um, don't blow it in the dog's face. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's probably a good rule of thumb in general. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Uh, each of us uh, has a dog, and each of us, I assume, has some issue with the dog we'd like to address. My dog is 14 years old. She's a mutt, part chihuahua, part dachshund, part beagle, we think. She's about 14 pounds, and she's a very anxious dog. Rescue dog. Uh, doesn't do nervous wetting, but shakes a lot, and when people come over... She loses her mind. She barks and barks and barks and barks. Never goes after them, but barks nonstop until they're gone. Uh, How would you go about handling that? Uh, <laughs> that what I would do is does uh, what's the dog's name? Lily. Lily. Does Lily like treats? Yes. Um, does she get people food in the house? Rarely. Rarely. If the so kids that, drop some. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that can be a leave-it command. And one of the questions I often ask when, when they call me for some help with their dog, I ask, if you're reading baby back ribs and a rib slips off the table and falls on the floor can, and the dog gets it, can you take it from the dog? That's an important question. That involves what's called resource guarding or um, possessive aggression. That's like going near the food bowl when the dog is eating. Mm -hmm. My suggestion right off the top, as opposed to stop her from barking and go negative, have at the foyer to your house or before the, the guest enters, give them little tiny pieces of people food treats. And when they come in the house, immediately have maybe Ha immediately have them call Lily over and toss a couple of little pieces of chicken on the floor. Mm. And then maybe sit down and, uh, and call Lily over and have her start earning these. Does she know what sit means and comply? Yes, yes. Okay, have Lily sit and get a treat. And if, if you do this often enough, Liam, the Lily may start looking forward to your guests coming over. You know what I'm saying? So, so you're you're saying have the guests so give her the guests because if you give, you see that brings up another extremely important concept: the inadvertent rewarding of unwanted behavior. Mm -hmm. People inadvertently reward behavior in their dogs they don't like without realizing it all the time. I've trained 100 celebrities' dogs. I've had, I was with an actress, did 120 shows of Victor Victoria on Broadway and gave me no voice intonation for 40 minutes. It was making me nuts. So I said to this lady, here's what I'd like you to do. Curse at the dog. I said, embarrass me, but I want the dog to think it's being praised. I made her act. Paula. Hi, you piece of dirt. You're just so ugly and stupid. I hate dogs. Yes, I do. <laughs> now, she's very happy with what I'm saying. Paula Jean is on his lap right now. It's, it's how. It's happy. So dogs read body and voice, and training a dog is letting the dog know you like the behavior as it's happening. One of the seven types of aggression is territoriality. Um, Lady Paula, when somebody comes to your house, does your dog bark? Yes. John, does yes. your dog bark? Yes. Anybody here have a dog doesn't bark when somebody comes to <laughs> No. Okay. She became territorial after sitting in your waiting room for about 15 minutes. Somebody had the audacity to come in. She barked. How and dare was now, they? Right. Exactly. So many, a thousand times in my career, I've looked to enter a house and the owner is holding the dog back on the leash and the dog wants to eat my kneecap. Is very aggressive. 
invariably all of the owners, what are they doing? They're petting the dog saying, it's okay, it's okay, take it easy, it's okay. Dogs read body language and voice. Your body language is rewarding this behavior, not to mention your voice. So that's the inadvertent rewarding of unwanted behavior. Well, one last one. There are no bad dogs, just bad owners, true or false? False. Um, well, uh, false with some caveats. Maybe two to four or five times a year, I had a dog that was really dangerous. And I had to tell these people, which is a horrible day, this dog needs to be euthanized because it's really da dangerous. So there are some dogs that perhaps as a puppy, um, could have been reared properly and it wouldn't have been so aggressive, but then we have mental institutions for people who are uh, mentally ill. Mm. We don't have those institutions for dogs, and there are, in that case, there are, there are bad dogs that just don't genetically, that are not good dogs. I mean, I'm Would you just name two breeds for me? Best breed, in general, best breed for a family with young children and the best breed to have in an apartment if you're like a 30-year-old alone in a small apartment? The best, one of the, one of the best breeds, and, and any breed can, re, any dog can really, of any breed can be a great dog. Um, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels okay, yep. are really mm -hmm. smart. They're not the rocket scientists of the world. Cavalier, you know, but great with breeders, I, nothing... I apologize, but that's been my experience. <laughs> I have a lot of yep. experience. Um, but I had a Cavalier. It's been my wife's favorite dog forever. Nice. Um, yeah. That was very well trained and very cooperative. Uh, I would also, there's a mistaken, you know, people think I couldn't get a big dog. I live in a studio. Right. The fact of the matter is a dog's exercise is not in the house. Mm. You know, you take the Great Dane living in a studio, it doesn't matter the size. The exercise is gone or outside. So you can have a big dog in a little place. For old people, I suggest get a small dog. I deal with too many people. You get a Labradoodle and you're 78 years old, you, get, you may get pulled yeah. down, you got a shattered elbow. I had that recently. I tell older people, get small dogs. Um, listen, I had a weightlifter who got standing uh, on a sidewalk on the ice, you know, got, shattered his elbow with a 12-pound dog. That just gave me a yank, and he slipped. Yeah. You know, as the bumper stickers say, stuff happens, and you, you can prepare <laughs> for that. Tom Shelby uh, has a new book out, Dog Training Diaries, Proven Expert Tips and Tricks to Live in Harmony with Your Dog. So I could tell you a second about the book. Yes. Um, I wrote the book because, as I said, this was the greatest job in the world. I helped an awful lot of people. And the manuals that I've read, most manuals are boring. And this particular, the way I wrote this in parables, I got a million stories. And so I didn't say, if you want to teach a dog to heal, this is what you do. I tell the story when I'm walking with a woman in Manhattan, and she's basically running to keep up with the dog. And through my lesson to her, I explain how to teach a dog to mm. heal. And it's, it's told in parables with a lot of funny stories. And the feedback I've gotten so far is very, very positive. People said, I love this story. I loved it when you said to the mafioso wife who said to me, um, you're more expensive than my shrink. And I said to her, yeah, but I'm getting results. <laughs> she was not very happy with that. So I, I tell lots of these stories. I, like I said, I, I'm a very lucky guy. I've been paid to play intelligently with dogs. doesn't get better. And, you know, I apologize for my initial question. What I should have said is, 
I like dogs better than people. President Kennedy okay. acceptance. <laughs> uh, I'm with you, John. Okay. <laughs> Good deal, Tom. Thank you Thanks, for being Tom. here. Thank, Thank you. you. We're very lucky to live where we live, in a city with so many wonderful assets and treasures. Among our greatest treasures, of course, Fenway Park, the Charles River, and Lloyd Schwartz, (laughs) the Poet Laureate of Somerville, uh, a, a writer, a teacher, a free spirit, a Pulitzer Prize winner back in the days when we worked together at the late lamented Boston Phoenix. Lloyd, it's great to see you. Great to see you, John. Thank you for inviting me. You look damn good for 49. <laughs> we try to try to keep that up. Yeah. See, yeah. I dye my hair. I Otherwise. See. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how long I've been 49. Well, let's not go there then. <laughs> so uh, this is going to sound like a Larry King question, you okay. know, where he's like, why'd you write the book? That's what he'd always say uh-huh. to an author because he never read the books. But I've read your poetry, and we're going to dig into that a little bit later. But uh, do you remember your first poem? Uh, I do. I was a – I kind of fell in love with poetry when I was a high school senior. And I had a great English teacher who would do anything to make us interested in poetry and literature. And we read Keats. We read – Robert Frost, poems suddenly seemed to actually mean something. And I really fell in love with poetry. So I wrote a poem called Moonlight and Garbage. How does it go? I, you're not going to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) It's lost to the sands of time. It is lost, gratefully, thankfully lost. Uh, uh, but, But in a way, when I look back on that, I didn't think I was I could possibly imitate great poets, but I loved poetry, and I had to try something of my own, and and that was a kind of I mean that was not what they would call a good poem, but it was I think it suggested something about my own temperament. Uh, uh, and my relationship to, to poetry. You express yourself in a number of different ways, prose, mm. verbally. Mm. What's different or special about poetic expression? You know, that's a question I've been asking myself for, for, for decades, for many years. To me, it seems that poetry, whatever the style, whatever the form, is a kind of distillation of whatever that subject has to be. It, it's boiling something down to its, to its just its, its, its most vital center. Let me share a, a sample of your work and then okay. have you explain how it does or doesn't okay. explain what you just said. All right. This is a poem called Song from oh. Lloyd's collection Cairo Traffic. University of Chicago Press, 2000, right? Mm -hmm. So a 19-year-old poem. Rain on the lake, room at the lodge, alone in a room in the lazy light. Loons on the lake, geese in the air, moose in the woods, aware, awake. 
a cry dislodged from the musty woods, the gamey musk of the one aroused. The roaming moose, the rooms lit up, the woods awake in the loony light. The moon dislodged, the lake of flame, the muse amazed, amused, aroused. That poem was recently set to music, uh, which I was, and since I called it song to begin with, I, it, it had a musical quality to me. And the composer John Harbison just, uh, uh, just very recently um, set it to music. It's a series of three of my poems that have been set to music, and it's called Schwartz Songs. Schwartz which, Songs? Which, which I, I think is uh, a very amusing and there's then, a title for your next collection. Line. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, this this poem really grabbed me. I was oh, reading through a bunch of good. your work because, first of all, it's so sparse. Mm-hmm. And this speaks to the point you made about how poetry distills right. things to their essence. or yeah. to, to So it, it evoked is – it, was this Maine? It was. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I love Maine, and yeah. it evoked Maine to oh, me. Oh, good, good, good. Just, just the descriptions of, of the environment there. But the wordplay yeah. is wonderful. The, uh, you know, the imagery. And then at the end, how I assume the muse is you. Yeah. Your muse. You're my muse. And how you yeah. describe how nature can... Yeah. amuse and amaze and arouse the muse within. Can I tell you something a little funny about the history of this poem? Uh, I, I, I read it at a reading, and um, one of the other people reading was a poetry editor. And she had liked the poem and wanted to publish it. And her publication was a little nervous about the word aroused, at the end of the poem, <laughs> and would I be willing to change it to something a little less um, graphic? Really? <laughs> yes. And I, <laughs> what? I better not say. What? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't change it, but wow. it, it got it got very very nicely well, published that, eventually. The last thing I want to do is waste our our time together <laughs> going down. Phoenix memory lane. Oh, let's though. But you know, while I've never felt constrained or hyper edited in in any job I've had, there was nothing like the freedom of writing about politics for the Boston Phoenix. Yeah. Um, Well, that was true of of writing about music, (laughs) because uh, there were times when I was, let's say, critical of. or groups, musical groups that advertised in the Phoenix, and that had to be something of a problem for the people who ran the Phoenix. But it never it never sank down to to my level. Nobody ever said, you know, can you be nicer to right. such and such? Oh no, the the late Stephen Mindich, the yeah. publisher of the Phoenix, was a stand up guy when it came to that kind of thing. totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I I miss it tremendously. So now you have what strikes me as a just a great gig. I poet laureate yeah. of Somerville. 
What what does it mean to be a poet laureate? Yeah, well, I'm 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 kind of figuring that out as we go along. I haven't been a poet laureate for very long. Okay, <laughs> only a few weeks, really. My sense is that not only should there be more poetry in people's lives, but that there is more poetry in people's lives than they even realize. One of America's great poet laureates, Robert Pinsky, who was poet laureate of the country for three consecutive terms, had a really profound and wonderful idea, which was his favorite poem project. And that was to go around the country and invite people who were not poets, who were not part of the poetry world, to admit that they had a poem or more than one poem in their lives and that the poem meant something to them. And then he went around the country videotaping these events in cities all over the place in which, you know, hi-fi repair people and and ditch diggers and city officials uh, had to admit in public that they, well, yeah, there was a poem in my life that I, that really meant something to me. And then they would read the poem and talk about the poem. So on April 17th, we're going to have a similar event for Somerville at the Somerville Armory. The mayor of Somerville is going to participate. He's going to read a poem and say what it meant to him or why he liked it. And we're in the process now of lining up more people to to come. No poets will be among the readers, at least not at this reading. And, um, and we'll see what happens. And I think there will be a minister and a someone who owns a restaurant nearby, and, and, and they all have to be residents of Somerville. April 17th, April 17th. Somerville Armory, right there on Highland Ave. Yes. What time? Uh, 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. Has the internet and the smartphone, the ubiquity of the smartphone, been good for poetry, bad for it? What an interesting question that is, because I think the answer is yes, it has been good for poetry. That... You know, of course, there are the big places to publish, The New Yorker and Poetry Magazine and The Atlantic. But there are all these poetry websites, poetry journals that are online. And they are very widely read. Um, The major poetry organizations, the Poetry Society of America, uh, the Academy of American Poets... Uh, the Poetry Foundation, they all have websites. You can find almost any poem you were looking for on the web. And there are also all these new poems that are very easy to access because of the Internet. What's your go-to place for really sort of cutting-edge poetry right now? I'm, I'm a big fan of, a, of, a poet, of an online poetry journal called Plume. P-L-U-M-E. P-L-U-M-E. And uh, they just took a new poem of mine, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. But there are some really interesting younger people, but also old-timers like, like me. I'm constantly being surprised by what I find there, and I'm, I'm always eager to see each, each new issue. But then in, in, in Boston... 
Plowshares, Agni, Salamander, magazines that have become affiliated with institutions, and always interesting stuff. And not just, they don't just publish people from Boston. What's a recent poem you've written that you're especially proud of? The composer John Harbison has just turned 80, and there have been a lot of celebrations for him. And they asked me to write something as a surprise for John at this event at, at, at Emmanuel Music. Read that one for us, Lloyd. It's called The Rehearsal. And it's um, John, John Harbison talking about his first meeting with the woman who became his wife. The Rehearsal. At our first duo rehearsal, Bach's B minor sonata was what we played. I already knew this young woman interested me. We borrowed a room, where was it? With a harpsichord, whose? And with few words began the sonata. As this unfolded, recognition, confirmation, accord, consternation. Above all, the marking of a common center. She had told me Bach was her favorite composer, her home site. But by the end of the first movement, I knew that in her case, this was not just devotion to the music, its spirit, its generosity, but a trust in it a willingness to let it speak. What I heard at the same time in that first movement is the loneliness that often inhabits the undertone of a great master's work, the habitation of a realm so rarely visited with so little company. To find that secret in music, the performer needs an inner life a kind of solitary experience. I sensed a person for whom art costs too much, for whom the sharing of that intense experience with others is often painful and risky. I knew what that might be like. I sensed joy, possibility, danger, complication, inextricability, a fulcrum, a magnet, a talisman. We began the second movement. A person for whom art costs too much. Yeah. I see a whole nother poem in the yeah, making. Yeah. What a great birthday present. Uh, I, I, I think he liked it. <laughs> and speaking of gifts, Lord Schwartz is sharing his with the people of Somerville, and I guess all comers are welcome. Absolutely, right? sure. April 17th at the Somerville Armory. Right. Well, we couldn't fit Fenway Park or the Charles River in here to interview <laughs> them, but at least we got one of our greatest local treasures in here, Lloyd um, Schwartz, Poet Laureate of Somerville. Thanks for being here on Studio BZ, and keep on doing what you do. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. I Really appreciate it.
close it out. Um, we just need a. Uh, we'll be back with a uh, fresh episode in a couple weeks. Yeah. We'll be mm-hmm. seeing you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening to our little project here. Yeah. We are at Studio BZ Pod on Twitter. And I'm at Keller at Large on Twitter. I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. I'm at Liam WBZ. And in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll be seeing you. you.